Welcome to episode 226 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, today, uh, I am not joined by Stuart Baker, who is in the wilds of the United States somewhere, uh, purporting to be off the grid, although I suspect that he's listening wherever he is. Uh, I am joined by a great panel, though. Uh, we have Matthew Hyman, who is visiting scholar at the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, pre previously, Matthew served as a lawyer with the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. Uh, welcome, Matthew. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, also here is Jim Lewis, uh, Senior Vice President of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, welcome, Jim. Thanks. Glad to be here. And we have Dr. Megan Reese, who is a Senior National Security Fellow at the R Street Institute, a Senior Editor of Lawfare and a visiting fellow at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School's National Security Institute. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me back. Uh, and I'm Brian Egan. I am a Steptoe partner formerly with the State Department and the National Security Council, and I'm the host of today's uh, program. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, we've got a lot of news to cover this week. Um, and let's start with uh, Friday's uh, announcement by the Justice Department, by the Deputy Attorney General, uh, of an indictment of, of course, the 12 Russian GRU officials uh, for federal offenses uh, that were tied to alleged interference with the 2016 presidential election. Uh, so according to the press release, these individuals were, quote, engaged in a sustained effort to hack into the computer networks of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DNC, and the Hillary Clinton campaign, and released information under a couple of uh, pseudonyms and through another entity. Um, so, Matthew, uh, you are our resident alumnus of NSD here. Um, this is not an indictment that's likely to lead to any prosecutions. Uh, so, why does the Justice Department do something like this, and what did you find in the indictment to be particularly interesting? So on, on the first part, why does the Justice Department do it? Um, often the reason the Justice Department is doing it is to express, uh, you know, political uh, unhappiness by the United States government with whatever bad acts are being perpetrated by uh, foreign powers. So we saw this with the PLA. Uh, and the OPM hack a couple of years ago during the Obama administration, and we're seeing the same thing here. So, you know, no one should expect uh, these GRU folks to turn up at a U.S. courtroom anytime soon to start arguing their innocence. That being said, what I found interesting in the indictment is what I find interesting in so many of these hacks is when you hear the GRUs involved, you imagine all these super sophisticated cracking software and people with multiple screens in front of them. And what you find out is it's really simple. It's send a dopey looking email that looks something like Google, get someone to be dopey enough to click on it or forward it to other people in their office, and then you're off to the races. So it, it, it points out the fact that most of these major hacks, wherever they are, whoever's perpetrating them, depend on the gullibility of someone sitting in front of their computer or iPad. Mm -hmm. and, and is there anything that can be done about this? I mean, I've heard people say, you know, 80% of an organization knows better than to click, but it really just takes one person uh, to, to, to click in the wrong spot. So, yeah, I mean, there's always things that can be done, and I'm not a uh, IT expert, but I'm familiar enough to know that there are some pretty sophisticated screening systems that most organizations of size have. I think the, the question I'd be asking the, the Democratic Congressional Committee and, and the DNC is, 
what level of cybersecurity sophistication did their IT systems have? Um, and I think that's the question that the RNC should be asking itself as well. I suspect that their level of sophistication lags far behind that of you know a multinational mm-hmm. company that mm-hmm. has to protect assets and profits and you know hit a number every quarter. But I don't know that. But right. Just, that's my suspicion. I see. Now, now Jim uh, Stewart has weighed in on his Twitter account, which is a dangerous new weapon that we're going to have to learn to cope with here on the podcast. That's okay. I don't. I don't read it. Good. Perfect. Uh, <clears throat> so Stewart says, uh, in principle, no one deserves Bob Mueller and his company uh, team more than the GRU. But neither Mueller nor DOJ get to make their own foreign policy. Uh, The Obama-era PLA indictments that Matthew mentioned were subject to heavy interagency coordination. What about these? I mean, do you see this as having a foreign policy impact, or is this something that's appropriate to talk about in diplomatic channels? So there's general agreement in the U.S. government, up, I'd say, to the three-star level, that the best thing we can do to dissuade the Russians is to punch them in the snout, Mm -hmm. right? And so I've found no one who disagrees with that. And the problem is to punch them in the snout, we need... Uh, one guy to sign off on that. And that's where it's a foreign policy issue is we don't really have a Russian policy. Mm-hmm. Anyone who thinks they can look into Putin's eyes and see his soul mm-hmm. probably needs to go and get their eyes checked. <laughs> so no, this is a foreign policy issue. We're not doing so well on it, but across the board, our Russian policy is confused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although maybe we'll hear coming out of the summit that President Trump actually turned over the extradition request as part of the meeting, and uh, we'll see a completely different story. He, he said that while he loves the intelligence community, at least on even-numbered days, uh, <laughs> he he found uh, Putin uh, very persuasive, which that and $1.50 will get you a Coke in most places. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's stay on electron <laughs> interference for the moment. Um, so, Matthew, <clears throat> uh, last week, Senators Langford and Klobuchar had held a hearing uh, on a bill that they've been pass, you know, uh, uh, advocating for for some months, the Secure Elections Act. Right. Um, can you tell us more about this bill? Is this something that we need? Will it help us? Uh, and why the bipartisanship? Well, I think why the bipartisanship, that's a good question in this era, um, is because I think both parties recognize that if elections are perceived to be swayed by foreign powers, no one's going to believe that anyone, you know, in the legitimacy of the government. So Mm -hmm. it's one of the few times where Republicans and Democrats can both agree that this is bad for business. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the act, um, you know, the broad outlines of it say that it's going to streamline cybersecurity info uh, information security sharing among the states it's going to provide security clearances for state election officials so that they can get at some of the intelligence we have and it's and it's also supposed to provide resources for states to upgrade their election equipment those all seem like good things um those all seem like um you know sort of table stakes given the situation we're talking about um the 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 wrinkle in all this, of course, is the federal government can't control state elections because right. we have this thing called the Constitution <laughs> that gives the states power to control their elections. But we certainly can, you know, if we're talking about the federal government, enable them to better share information. It, it should also be noted there's sort of a dueling bill out there that's largely supported by Democrats. I don't think any Republicans signed on, but this is Ron Wyden's bill. And Senator Wyden wants a, um, a regime where uh, all the election machines must have a paper trail behind them. And there has to be a a certain amount of auditing that takes place. And um, I I will say this. If you are in the private sector providing election machinery, Mm. 
and the Senate is holding hearings on security and only and two of the three biggest competitors in the space don't show up, that's not good for industry. And that's not a good way to be able to shape outcomes because what it says to the Senate is, we, the private sector, don't care about this. And it gives the Senate a green light to craft whatever solution it thinks is right, which may not be the ideal mm-hmm. one. So um, not the smartest move by those folks. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do think that on the issue of kind of federalism and, uh, and uh, the principled concern in some way, um, that seems to be one of the issues that's going on behind the curtain because the Senate uh, considered including this in the NDAA. They yeah. were happy to include the funding part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of the even information sharing and other things that could look like um, uh, federal um, in- intervention in yeah. state-run elections are going to be difficult for some folks to swallow. Yeah, and I would expect people like Mike Lee and Rand Paul to be leading the charge on, hey, this is a state issue. The state should own this. And so that's the tension, I think, particularly within the Republican caucus. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that there's a real strong feeling within the Democratic caucus around keeping things within the states. But I think that probably is a tension on the R side of the Mm -hmm. aisle. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's let's turn to another uh, a favorite topic of the podcast here, which is the travails of ZTE. Uh, in its quest to get out from under the denial order uh, that had been issued by the Commerce Department in April, uh, and that looked like it would have meant the end of ZTE. So, um, Megan, we've had some developments this week. Uh, on Friday, Commerce, uh, in a you know a, a Friday afternoon uh, press release, uh, they lifted the denial order. So, what's your take on what's going on? What can we expect to happen in terms of next steps? What is this? action by the Commerce Department do? Yes. So so basically, ZTE will be able to get back on its feet and be able to um, use American components for, for its phones and everything else pretty soon once they deposit $400 million into an escrow account, which is basically ass- there to assure that if they do something bad again, if they engage in sanctions violations, mm-hmm. if they don't follow through with with the requirements that they agreed to, that the U.S. can keep that money. But I think you're going to see pretty significant pushback from Congress on this. And and there are three major buckets that's mm-hmm. that's coming in. There's there's the the trade stuff. This was lifted seemingly as part of the trade negotiations uh, between Trump and President Xi. But then there's also the sanctions violations, the folks who see this as uh, an issue with if a, con- if a company violates sanctions and then just can give a little bit more money, they'll get off the hook. That's, mm-hmm. that's a problem. That's a deterrence problem. And then there's the espionage issue. They've been accused of spying on behalf of the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. So you have these three big buckets buckets that Congress is going to want to deal with. Mm -hmm. And even though um, ZTE may end up complying and have to pay Mm -hmm. some pretty large fines Mm -hmm. and deal with a lot of American oversight, Mm -hmm. I I actually don't see this issue going away because of those other issues Mm -hmm. um, involved with the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd I'd just be interested in a poll of the room here on. So uh, as Megan said, ZTE's now agreed to, they've paid another billion dollars. They put another $400 million in escrow. They've fired their entire board of directors and and leadership. Uh, They've agreed to this intrusive monitor for 10 years uh, to me, this sounds like a pretty serious penalty, um, but there is a, a congressional and political overlay that really makes it hard to uh, 
um, to kind of look at this only on the on the merits. Um, and I, I'm just curious what what your thoughts are. Is this a real penalty? Is this something that Congress should be concerned about? Oh, Congress is deeply confused <laughs> on this, and they have this strange notion that if they can sacrifice CTE, that will somehow make us less vulnerable to Chinese spying. Wow, these people, that's like the Flat Earth Society. (laughs) Second, the Chinese government is not going to let ZTE go under. What they'll do is they'll keep them afloat Mm -hmm. uh, until such time as there's a replacement Chinese technology, which is not what we want. I mean, so if if you redefine this as let's punish Qualcomm because we're mad at ZTE, that looks a little different. So mm-hmm. I think the the thinking on this, what, what's the opposite of strategic? Whatever it is, that's what we've been doing. I see. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, going back to uh, Mr. Baker's Twitter account. We have uh, oh, somebody who, not Stuart, uh, Dave Adel, who weighs in and says, it's painful that the only weapon we seem to have in our quiver is tactical nukes. In the long run, this sort of thing is counterproductive as along the lines of what you said, Jim, it highly incentivizes China to invest in domestic production of entire verticals. Um, so uh, let's go back to you, Megan. So in other Chinese espionage uh, allegations and news, we have another company, the an industry, the, the surveillance video camera industry, uh, which is taking it on the chin a little bit from our Congress. And uh, one company in, in particular is outspoken in, in objecting to this. Uh, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, so this is uh, this is different. The uh, Hikvision, if I'm saying mm-hmm. that properly, has been had had some vulnerabilities that they think could have been used by the Chinese government for espionage purposes. Uh, the company denies it full throttle, and they're actually accusing the U.S. and Congress, in particular, of needing a scapegoat, um, another company to push against for the cyber espionage stuff. And they say, you know, we've actually set up an oversight center in California where you can have your police come and look at our source code for our our, um, mm-hmm. our technology, but you haven't done it. And so there's, there's some legitimate concerns here that the pendulum is swinging so far in Congress to oversight over Chinese espionage that maybe they're pushing against companies that just have the same sort of cybersecurity insecurities that other companies do. On the other hand, uh, this company, the the parent company, is 43% owned by the Chinese government. And that does raise some very legitimate flags that Mm -hmm. a lot of this technology could be used for spying. Mm -hmm. It, it almost, it, if you're a Chinese company trying to do business in the United States, um, mm-hmm. you, you almost have to wonder uh, what it is you can do uh, to get out from what actually mm-hmm. may be some legitimate concerns on the U.S. Yes. government side, at least some cases. Yes. Uh, how, do you, how do you prove your bona fides and your yeah. independence from your own government? Uh, it, it may be impossible in some it, of these cases. And it, independence from your own government mm-hmm. when you're owned by your own particularly government. Particularly when you're that owned makes by your own government, yes. It's impossible to prove independence. And yeah. we set up a lot of these business arrangements. They're all predicated on the view of a sort of globalization, one world, everyone will be friendly. And in fact, China's a military competitor. And so mm-hmm. we're stuck in some ways. We have a supply chain where China is deeply integrated into it. They have the same problem with our stuff, you know, as we just talked about with ZTE. And there's really no easy way out. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure Hikvision 
Great name, by the way. I'm not sure Hikvision <laughs> would be the centerpiece of any espionage strategy, but there's good evidence that if the Chinese want to get into some technology made by a Chinese company, uh, they will do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah they, the, the big question is, when can a company be compelled to spy on behalf of the Chinese government? And I'm, I'm not sure we're not moving towards a place where the U.S. military, at the very least, and other government systems are going to have increasingly strong concerns and oversight over every single one of these Chinese companies to, to try to figure out the extent to which that could be compelled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's stick on the theme of uh, espionage, U.S. and China, for a moment. So, Jim, there's been uh, talk in the news. The State Department says that they are uh, taking steps to monitor China's compliance with this uh, somewhat famous agreement that President Obama and President Xi entered into in 2015 about uh, cyber-related espionage uh, and economic uh, uh, secrets. Uh, what's what's going on there? Is this is this agreement something that's ever been uh, worth its salt in some way? And have you have there been changes that are uh, significant over the past couple of months? You know, I think if you talk to people, you get very uneven very different responses. But in general, most people seem to think it's working, noting that the agreement was very carefully scoped. It says that China and the U.S. agree not to use government entities for purely commercial espionage. It doesn't say no espionage. In fact, the U.S. wrote that in, that espionage could continue. Mm -hmm. So one of the dilemmas is, you know, you break into a Navy top-secret weapon facility, that's perfectly legitimate under the agreement. Right. Hopefully we're doing the same thing to them. On the commercial side, what I hear, though, it is it is still working, although it's beginning to fray a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it sounds like from what you say, this is this is an, an area, though, where it's worth the government's continuing to talk. Uh, and this is an area where there may be a meeting of the minds or at least somewhat of a meeting of the minds, as opposed to other areas of espionage, which I think both countries would say are still off the table for for such an agreement. The dark secret for the Chinese is that they, despite all their propaganda, they still depend on Western technology to make progress. So there's a powerful incentive for them to steal it. Mm-hmm. And that temptation will come up again and again for the U.S. The agreement hasn't stopped them in Germany at all. The Germans didn't get a similar agreement. So it's not like Chinese commercial espionage has stopped. Mm-hmm. It's just it's gone down considerably in the mm-hmm. U.S. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Matthew, back to you. Uh, so uh, this is a, a story. I really wish Stuart were here to talk about this story, which is uh, last week, Twitter uh, cleaned up a number of suspicious accounts. The numbers were actually staggering in some cases. Uh, over 2 million followers were dropped from President Obama's account. 7 million followers were dropped from Twitter's own account. What, what, I think Katy Perry and Justin Bieber also suffered losses of followers as a result of this <laughs> house cleaning by Twitter. So everyone suffers uh, across the board losses. Uh, what is what is Twitter trying to do here? Is this uh, is this a good use of time? Is this something we should be worried about? Is this a long time in coming? Um, I, I think it's a long time in coming, but I think it's driven by Twitter's customers. Twitter's customers who are advertisers and who look at how many followers Jim has or Brian or Megan have are saying, how do I know that when my message goes out to Jim or Brian or Megan, it actually reaches all those people that supposedly follow them? And so while Twitter is not stupid to dress this up as 
Um, you know, we're, we're all for integrity and purity on our platform, and we want everyone to know what the truth is. I think it's really driven by customers saying, I don't actually believe that Stuart Baker has 5 million followers in the Ukraine. <laughs> Tell me how that can be true. And then I think when Twitter has gone and looked behind it and said, actually, Stuart's got five followers in the Ukraine, the advertiser says, okay, fine, then the rate I'm paying you for my advertising has got to change. So I think it's really more of a reaction to what their customers are demanding mm-hmm. more than anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. My, my kid works for a hip-hop website, and the scales fell from my eyes when he told me there's a there was maybe this has changed it. There's a market in buying Twitter followers, and you buy them in blocks of like five thousand or ten thousand or hundred thousand. There's a price you go out. Companies will give you. So if you want to have a million followers, it's probably going to cost you about three thousand bucks. They're not real, but you know they still show up on this. They still show up on the scorecard. Can I sell a follow for people for like dollar each? Yeah, it's totally worth a try. Right, right, right. Well, you, your account, you're inherently suspicious though, so you may be blocked before you know it. Um, and then uh, finally, this is uh, something that in in the normal course, a GAO report on a Defense Department program is normally not newsworthy, but. It's on CFIUS, which is something that has been rather newsworthy lately. GAO released a report early last week uh, talking about the Defense Department's CFIUS capabilities. Jim, what's the takeaway from this report, and is this something that's going to impact the ongoing discussions in Congress and the administration? Yeah, because they kicked one of the most important parts of the bill. The bill has gone through all sorts of travails while people struggled to either keep loopholes open or close them. But the biggest one is it says that CFIUS will now have to look at advanced technologies. And so then you say, okay, that's great. What is an advanced technology? We have no idea. (laughs) Uh, More importantly, uh, DOD and the intelligence community dismantled the process they had during the Cold War to identify advanced technologies. You know, anyone can say quantum computing, it's important. Okay, what does that mean? And we don't have the, the infrastructure that we used to have in the IC and in DOD. Uh, to give us a level of precision. So I think the important thing here is everyone gets that we want to keep advanced technology out of the hands of the Chinese. We'll have to move a little bit further in defining it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, the, the bill talks about, I think the words used in the current bill are emerging in foundational technologies. Uh, and this is something that I think DOD has really been pushing as part of its own uh, concerns about the CFIUS process. Um, it is interesting because I think everybody will turn to DOD for some leadership in this space. Uh, it's probably what they want, and uh, the report suggests that they they don't have the facilities, as you said, Jim, to, to do this right now. And they want to rely on the export control lists, which, at least in the case of the commerce list, probably is better at catching submerging technologies. So we've got a ways to go to rebuild this capacity. Uh, to say the least. Uh, Okay, well, I think that that is a wrap for this week. All right, I'm sorry I couldn't do the news roundup this week, but I am going to do the interview with uh, Woodrow Hartzog, uh, who goes by Woody, uh, who's a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University uh, and who has written Privacy's Blueprint, uh, the battle to control the design of new technologies, which is essentially an effort to rethink privacy regulation by focusing on the design of uh, systems, uh, 
social media and the like. Uh, but I'm not going to try to lay that out. Uh, Woody, welcome. And well, let me just ask you, uh, um, can you give us the elevator speech for the theme in your book? Sure. And thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. So the thesis of the book is that the law should take design more seriously than it does. And by that, I mean, I try to identify several areas in the book where design plays an important role in determining what I call privacy winners and losers. And a, a lot of this, this, the way in which design works in our lives doesn't seem to be uh, properly recognized. In, in US or really international uh, privacy law and policy. And so I try to suggest a way in which uh, lawmakers can more cohesively approach design. Uh, they could, I say they should embrace, they should identify values. And, and some of the values I say that, that we should focus on are trust, obscurity, autonomy. And I focus on autonomy as distinct from control and consent. One of the big uh, critiques in the book is that privacy law and policy relies pretty heavily on this concept of informed consent and notice and choice. And I think that that doesn't scale in the modern age. And I think the design actually can be used to, to, to really corrupt and weaken that as a regulatory mechanism. And then in the back end of the book, I say that um, once we've identified values, we articulate boundaries, reasonable boundaries, so not uh, uh, micromanaging every aspect of design, but rather just articulating the outer boundaries of dangerous design, abusive design or deceptive design. Um, and then I talk about many different ways in which lawmakers can approach uh, to, uh, the, regulating the design of technology. It doesn't always have to be robust. It doesn't have to wind up in some sort of tort liability or a heavy regulatory scheme. It could be soft educational efforts. It could be better funding opportunities. It could be simply better recognizing the role of design and existing things like contracts. Um, and then in the back end of the book, I, I try to play out what I call this framework or a design agenda or a blueprints uh, with three different kinds of technologies. The first is social media. The second is what I call hide and seek technologies, technologies like surveillance technologies or technologies like encryption that are designed to hide. And then finally, the Internet of Things, uh, which I, I talk about uh, ways in which that, that poses a, a really significant privacy problem largely due to design choices. So that's, I, that's I, the elevator pitch for the book. All right. I, I, and I, I have to say my first thought on imagining the government contribution to design is a little like imagining that their contribution to literature is uh, demonstrated by the Facebook terms of service. Uh, 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 no one thinks those, that's a great work of literature or even something you would read for pleasure. Uh, and the design of websites uh, is surely uh, not going to become better, uh, at least aesthetically, if the government starts telling people uh, how to do their design. Well, so I, I understand that worry. Um, I think that it, when it comes to uh, things like user interfaces, uh, I think it would be a mistake for the government to say, here's what all user interfaces should look like. And, you know, from A to Z, you know, top down, this is the way it's going to look. But uh, and that's why I propose more general loose standards um, rather than a, a a really micromanaging, heavy-handed approach. But if you look at the existing rules we have now, um, the notice and 
choice model is already junking up the way in which websites work. So if you log on to any website in Europe, then you're going to get that annoying ad that's, that pops up and says, we want you to know that this website uses cookies, and cookies are surveillance trackers. Yeah, it, it, remind, it reminds me of, uh, you know, you kind of wish for somebody would take the Southwest Airlines approach and say, you know, if you haven't been in a car since 1965, uh, here's how seatbelts work. Uh, and and right. you, you, you easily <laughs> somebody should say, you know, uh, you've, you, you know the drill. Click here. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And it's I mean, it's all it's all a, just a meaningless sort of road exercise that doesn't do much of anything other than to really transfer the risk of loss onto users. My actually preferred approach would be to transfer a little more risk back to the designers and give them a lot of autonomy, right? So we, we, we have loose boundaries where we say don't do, uh, don't create things that are unreasonably dangerous, don't create things that are deceptive, don't be abusive, and then we leave the rest to the designers rather than sort of engaging in this farce of saying, okay, here are all the risks, A to Z, you agree to them, and then you agree, and then all of a sudden it's on you. It just strikes me as counterproductive. I, I, Design I, I'm, I'm not going to defend the idea that people are reading and agreeing uh, after uh, uh, thinking about it uh, to these terms because uh, none of us does, and there's not enough time in, in, in our lives to do it. Uh, uh, but I, I, I do think you you sort of shortchange the uh, value of a notice and consent uh, a system uh, um, in in a couple of ways. First, it does allow for flexibility, allows people to try things and to try things with some confidence that they will uh, be acceptable uh, to regulators and to users. Um, and second, it, it, one reason they have that assurance is we aren't all reading these terms of service, but somebody is reading all of them, and somebody is going through and blacklining the last version against the newest version so that they can look for outrages and bring them to our attention in the media. So there is a feedback loop. It is not the feedback loop that uh, uh, GDPR actually imagines is occurring, but it's very real, isn't it? Well, so I think that's a great point. Yes, I think that private, uh, privacy policies and long terms of use serve a role. Uh, and they serve a role for the audience that I think you've identified, which is advocates, regulators, um, people that actually do read these things from start to finish. But the farce that I, I really want to avoid is that these things are, are meant in any way at all for users. Um, and and it goes back to this larger somewhere along the way, and I'm not sure when we decided, but but the regulators and industry decided that informed consent was the right way to proceed in um, making sure that people's privacy's privacy was respected while using technologies. Um, the idea being, of course, the way that informed consent works is tort law which is if we tell you about all the risks and you agree to take on all those risks and you do so anyway, then sometimes stuff happens, but for the most part, we're, you know, you've, you've taken those on and we can proceed accordingly. But informed consent doesn't work for three really important reasons in the modern ecosystem. One, informed consent was designed around decisions that don't occur often, right? So you have surgery. I just, I just had some recent minor surgery and I signed, of course, you know, a slew of documents um, and I listened very intently to all the possible things that could happen. And I had 
a chance to make that decision, but I don't have to make that decision very often. Meanwhile, we make that decision 10 to, to 50 times a day uh, with websites. The, the next reason informed consent doesn't work is that uh, the consequences are so visceral when things go wrong, right? So you, I can envision for things like surgery, what could happen, right? Someone could leave something inside of me or something could keep bleeding and be unable to stop or there could be an infection. But it's really difficult to project that kind of harm with the misuse of data into the future. Um, and, and then the final reason um, is that the, the stakes typically are so high for standard informed consent regime, surgery, you could die, right? Or, or have a serious complication. Whereas the, the harm that comes from these small decisions in the, in the data ecosystem is very small. And so we, we tend to sort of discount them. That's why I, that's when we click, I agree as quickly as possible because we perceive the stakes to be so small. And so there's no real incentive to put any investment in them. And so, so my move would be to move away from notice and choice for users entirely. People just want to use technology in a reasonable way without getting hurt. Um, so let's not bring, you know, massive, my argument would be, let's not bring massive boilerplate contract law into this. So that maybe there should be a box to check that says, um, um, I'm too busy to read this, but I'm willing to trust you. Uh, possibly, Which yeah. is, oh, which is a, fairer, a fairer interpretation of that little check. Right. I think that's a much fairer interpretation. And I think that's what people are actually doing, right? So if you look at some of the research, um, one of the, the highest drivers of people's willingness to trust companies is actually not anything that's said in these terms, but brand recognition. Right. Like if everyone is using Amazon, then they must be relatively safe to use. And so I'll use Amazon as well. Well, isn't that, um, isn't, isn't that really um, part of, of our lived experience? We will try things where we don't see obvious, terrible consequences. Uh, and if nothing bad happens, we'll try them again. And about five times in, we just don't expect anything bad to happen, which is not, you know, that that is human nature. And it's also kind of not a stupid strategy uh, uh, rather than relying on us to read all the possibilities uh, uh, frankly I don't spend as much time on on those medical disclosures as probably I should because I know they're they're going to include every conceivable terrible thing that would happen even if it isn't very likely uh, and it's just going to make me crazy and I'm still going to get the surgery so I, I, I'm not convinced that uh, uh, we should be Assuming there's a better way to get informed consent, and maybe we should be just saying, yeah, people uh, try this out, and until you disappoint them, they're going to uh, count on you to do the right thing. Yeah, and, and maybe there's a maybe there's a middle ground, which is something I've thought about a little that exists in in things like products liability law, which is we don't frame this as some kind of informed consent where the full litany of of what is going to happen with your data is presented to you, but rather um, we, we view these things as warnings, right? So products liability law says uh, you can't make anything that's uh, uh, unreasonably dangerous. Uh, and there are certain things that you can make that are dangerous that are obvious to people. So you don't have to put a warning on a knife that says, watch out, this knife is sharp because it's relatively obvious. But if there's a hidden danger or a danger that might not be evident, then you have to give warnings. And then if, if a warning wouldn't cut it, uh, then product liability law says, well, then you can't make it. It's unreasonably dangerous, right? If there's no way to really warn people and they're going to use it in a certain way. And so, so maybe a way to sort of cut the difference is to say, let's frame this not as an attempt to fully inform you 
but rather just an attempt to warn you of the of the risks that you probably want to know about. So the problem um, I and warnings would look differently than I think what a lot of the the things that we see now. The problem I have with with that, I I I, I take your point, and I think the analogy to strict products liability will chill uh, Silicon Valley to its bones, but uh, uh, it's. It's certainly a plausible uh, uh, model to employ, except that for products liability, with a few rare exceptions that are still controversial, uh, something really bad has to happen to somebody before you start talking about uh, uh, liability for the company that made it possible. Uh, And yet you're pretty scathing about the fact that uh, traditional privacy law requires a harm. Uh, and, uh, and I guess I'm, I'm asking, are you really imagining that there will be strict products liability for stuff that causes harms that are purely theoretical? No, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, a lot of the, the harm problems that exist in tort law um, are, are uh, gave rise because there are harm requirements for a reason, right? You don't want to create a cause of action where everyone can sue for punitive damages for something that's completely made up. Um, a lot of what I'm advocating for is not necessarily opening the floodgates on tort law, though I think that we're probably going to get there with things like the Internet of Things sooner rather than later, particularly as the IoT becomes hard to d- distinguish from a lot of, of uh, non-software counterparts that combine to, to cause some sort of physical or, or heavy emotional harm. Um, I think that there are sorts of harm that should be better recognized. I think the massive exposure that can result from data security harms could be better recognized. Um, this is a lot of what I call obscurity lurches in the book. Um, but a lot of, of what I would recommend actually is just a more regulatory approach that embraces the wisdom that's been developed in products liability law. So in other words, not creating massive liability from civil lawsuits, but rather um, regulatory fines. And it doesn't even have to be output-based. Uh, some of the things that, that I advocate in the book are actually process-based. In other words, um, one of the ways that we can make products safer is simply require companies to go through a series of steps that are designed to help ensure that most of the time the product is reasonably safe. Um, and if you fail to follow those steps, then that's when you're liable, regardless of whether it results in harm on the, on the back end or not. I mean, this is largely the way that data security is, is regulated in certain um, sectors. I mean, not maybe not necessarily tort law, but in other sectors. I, 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 mean, I think we could. Yeah, I agree with you. Some, I agree with you on the security side, uh, because you can then say, yeah, you know, I had to uh, go get uh, uh, all new computer or uh, credit card numbers uh, and uh, and then reauthorize all of my recurring charges. And it was a pain in the neck and it took me three hours online to do it, uh, and that ought to be worth something. Fair enough. Uh, uh, But if somebody says, well, I'm I'm afraid now that my information is out there, or uh, um, it's embarrassing that people know something about me, uh, and you should be strictly liable, uh, Google or Facebook or uh, Twitter because you enabled people to find out something that I didn't want them to know uh, and I didn't realize that this was going to be possible um, and so the the company should be strictly liable for that. It strikes me as you're, you're now at a point where the harm is just kind of based on the sensibilities of whoever the plaintiff is. 
Well, so there are several ways that you could conceptualize this. I mean, one is I, I don't argue necessarily for strict liability in all circumstances. A lot of what I argue for is, is sort of standard negligence liability, which would be as long as you acted reasonably, then if the harm you know, occurred, then it's, you're not liable because there was some sort of unforeseeable harm. I, I think that foreseeability is a key component in a lot of the design protections that I've been arguing for. But a lot of what I'm arguing for is actually two different kinds of harm. One is based on the the massive exposure and vulnerability that can result from information being exposed in the marketplace, whether it comes because of a hack or whether it comes because someone violated a contract uh, and sold you know, 550 million user profiles to Cambridge Analytica. Um, there's a there's a certain kind of exposure that results when a, a large amount of personal information is out there. And so a lot of it depends on whether you buy into significantly increased vulnerability as a harm in and of itself. And there's we could, I think, debate that. Um, but then there's another harm that results here, and that's the, the breach of trust harm, which is, I think, well established in lots of other areas of the law, which is that when I enter into a relationship, when someone asks me to trust them, which is what we were talking about earlier. And they say, trust me with the information, I'll protect it, I'll do the following things for it. And then they don't do it, then, then, then that's a relational harm. Um, this is what, you know, we, we enforce non-disclosure agreements all the time, sort of based on this idea of a, of a relational harm. And a, a, I'm now, I relied upon something and my reliance interest was now thwarted. Yeah, but in, in that um, case, I signed a contract not to disclose things. I, 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 it was very clear to me what I could and couldn't talk about. Uh, um, if but you're not gonna, always. I mean, it depends on the wording, right? Well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> that are pretty vague. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And, and uh, on the other hand, if what you're proposing is that we should turn uh, uh, Twitter into a fiduciary uh, or Facebook into a fiduciary, uh, I mean, that's famous for making up obligations after the fact on the fiduciary. Uh, I, and we're creating this free-floating liability. And the response of the social media companies is going to be to become extraordinarily conservative about what they do in and 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 so instead of permissionless uh, uh, innovation, we're going to have innovation at the speed of lawyers, and I'm not sure that's really yeah. what we want. Sure. So there will there, there will be costs. Um, I embrace the the fiduciary like model along the lines of what uh, Jack Balkin has proposed, and Neil Richards and I have written several articles about the the role of trust, and Ari Waldman has a great book out on privacy as trust, and and. Uh, I, I generally like that model. I realize that it does come with a lot of costs, that uh, it will mean that platforms will not be able to do everything that they want to do. But, but on the flip side, I think that there's a real positive that can come, if particularly if companies voluntarily adopt a fiduciary model, which is one of the ways that we could do this, is have it be an opt-in. And if companies are serious about protecting people's trust, then they can opt into that model. Um, we could make it mandatory, which is another way to do it. But but one of the real advantages of that is then that companies will have uh, uh, a, something that they can take to users and say, just trust us with your information. We're promising to be bound by this set of rules because uh, when when companies respect the trust that people give them, then they they can do things with that information. They can they can benefit from that information while still 
keeping the user safe and keeping the trust that they've been given, and then everybody wins. Um, if we if we proceed under that model, will it be at a slower pace? Maybe. Um, but in terms of long-term sustainability, I think that, that we might actually end up better off. We might be able to still have platforms um, growing at, at possibly a slower but still increasing rate. Um, we might be able to ease into the digital economy without quite the same sort of um, uh, uh, dis disruption, and I use that sort of not in the tech good sense, but in the, in the bad sense um, and harm that we're seeing right now. And so, so if, it, if it creates more trust and more sustainability, then I think that, that's, that could be good. So I, I've been very critical of the European data protection stuff, uh, the rights of man approach to uh, 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 privacy, uh, because it is so inherently vague. You never know whether you're in violation of it or not. And you'll find out you're in violation when uh, important bureaucrats come to you and say you're in violation, which means that basically it's a tool of the ruling uh, uh, powers to uh, beat up people that they don't like. Uh, and uh, your invocation of Cambridge Analytica reminded me, you know, do you really think Cambridge Analytica was even a privacy problem? It's not a privacy problem. No, there's, there's nobody running around saying, I gave away the names of my friends to Cambridge Analytica, uh, and now I'm really disappointed. Uh, uh, what they're disappointed about is the wrong person won the 2016 election, and that's what all of the emotion is about, and privacy is just a stick to beat Cambridge Analytica and Facebook with. Well, I mean, it's a good point in that this practice that uh, the uh, academic that had originally designed the survey that then gave the information to Cambridge Analytica, the practice that, that was being engaged in was actually routine. Um, and it certainly wasn't Cambridge, just Cambridge Analytica that was engaging in it. And a lot of the questions that I got in the wake of Cambridge Analytica was, why this, why now? And I do think that one of the reasons was probably had to do was political. Um, but I, I think that the other one was there's only so many times that um, you can realize that you thought that Facebook was working one way and it was working really an entirely different way. And there are only so many sort of apologies you can hear before you just sort of lose it. <laughs> Yeah, I know that's that. Uh, fair enough, uh, uh, and I think you know uh, there have been a lot of criticisms of, of Facebook's uh, uh, design of their systems for exercising the control that it provides. It's uh, uh, that's one reason why design is salient these days. Is uh, the design of those uh, uh, screens uh, leaves a lot to be desired. Right. When but, it gets back to the whole notice and choice thing. So, I mean, it is a privacy issue in the sense that we've decided that privacy is a notice and choice issue. And the choice that was given to users was a sort of obscure little button nestled, you know, five screens deep that said, I give permission for my friends to share information about me on XYZ platform. Right. And nobody knew nobody knew that button was there. And it was, uh, I believe, turned on by default at the time. Um, which just allowed for sort of massive exfiltration of data without people's knowledge. And I think that's really where a lot of people got upset, which is that they, don't even, they didn't even realize how the data ecosystem was working. And I think that most people don't. Um, I think that even some of the brightest minds that have tried to figure out the full 
range of the data ecosystem have trouble wrapping their minds around it. I've looked at some of these charts and they befuddle me. So let me um, let me let me let me push your uh, argument in the direction that uh, at least traditional academics aren't likely to want it to go. Um, sure. uh, suppose that I'm the parent of a of the child that uh, uh, Jim Comey made famous, who was abducted, disappeared, uh, probably killed. Uh, all that was left was her cell phone, um, iPhone, uh, that uh, had her diary on it. Uh, and the police wanted to see if she had any indication of contact with somebody that they could be investigating, uh, and they couldn't get into the phone. Um, do the parents get to say, hey, Apple, you never told uh, us or our daughter about the risks of your locking up this stuff in ways that law enforcement can't get at. And that's a design decision you made uh, um, that wasn't fully and properly disclosed. So we want to hold you liable for your uh, encryption policy. So in terms of holding someone liable, I'll put that to the side just because I, 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 even though I'm a tort law professor, I don't think that everything is a tort. But in terms of Apple's responsibility to adequately articulate how their technology works, I think it's a fair point. Um, if we could, depending on what the sort of collective consciousness of, of, a, of a significant appreciable minority of users was regarding whether the information would be stored um, Apple's probably has a, an obligation to adequately articulate how their technology works, and that includes warning people if they are relying on the traceability of a technology. So, for example, let's say that the Find My iPhone app, which I think is a, a, a useful app, um, were somehow uh, n rendered inoperable uh, in certain situations in a way that would not be evidence to most people who were using that app and maybe even relying on that app. Um, if, if we could plausibly state a case for that, then maybe we need to have some sort of warning, not notice and choice, but some sort of warning that says, warning, um, this is not going to work in the following situations that you might have been relying on. I mean, if it's foreseeable that people relied upon that, then maybe we do need a warning. Well, I don't know if that's it's that sure foreseeable. It's sure foreseeable that there will be criminal evidence in somebody's iPhone. You don't know whose, uh, um, and you know, as you can imagine, I. Uh, it's always possible to say that wasn't good enough warning, adequate warning. Yeah, yes, you you gave them uh, the notice after they'd bought the phone and were stuck with it, but uh, you didn't give them the ability to change it. You didn't tell their parents, who obviously have an interest in their well-being and in the prosecution of their murderer. I uh, so um, there are ways in which the idea that the design is faulty if the outcome is unacceptable uh, uh, could turn out to be just an endless sink of litigation for, for companies. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is, well, uh, I think that in terms of finding what adequate warnings are, companies wrestle with this all the time and have been in, in areas far beyond privacy. Um, I mean, this is, this is standard sort of products liability law, not just strict tort liability, but, but generally trying to figure out what, what an adequate warning was. Um, but, uh, but I do think that it's, it's fair to place the responsibility of adequate warnings on the, the companies that make the technology. So I am, uh, I, 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 fair enough. I, and I, I'm going to give you a chance to 
tell me in just a second uh, uh, what uh, events or papers you're, you, you have coming up that people can uh, uh, pay attention to or are listening to this, but uh, sure. I, I do want to tell you my design story, and you, you, I, you touch on uh, architects, uh, maybe even Frank Lloyd Wright, who was famous for coming to visit the people who had moved into his houses and putting their furniture someplace else because he thought they had, you know, interfered with his vision and they should live the life he had imagined for them, not the life that they wanted. And and that has struck me that uh, I once I almost became an architect and I finally didn't claiming uh, uh, that it was because there is such a deep well of kind of fascist authoritarianism at the bottom of most architects view of what their impact on the world will be. Uh, And um, that leads me to the observation that you are pushing on an open door if you take an inherently authoritarian field like design, where basically people are making decisions for the user uh, and telling them how to live and how to uh, uh, operate, and you're selling the idea of using that to governments which have similar uh, uh, tendencies. Uh, um, So I predict great success for uh, the focus of government on design for the future because they're really bedfellows made for each other. <laughs> I, you, I, I think that's right. Um, I think that I come from this from the vantage point that, that the ability to design is an exercise of power, right? When you create an object that is then released into the world and you make design decisions, you make certain realities more or less likely. Some of those are foreseeable, some of those are not foreseeable. But to the ones that are foreseeable, I think that you have to be accountable um, for the ways in which your power is is creating those uh, uh, reasonably likely scenarios. Um, And that's what government does, right? So governments, uh, or at least partially, the role of government is to make sure that 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 sort of power is not abused, that it's used um, safely in a, and in a sustainable way. And so, um, that's, that's, that's largely the sort of, uh, font of a lot of this. Well, that's, um, although that's a, that's a, that's a great response to my uh, suggestion, which is, uh, yeah, designers are authoritarian, so we should have another authority over them. Uh, um, right. so, uh, or propped up against each other. Right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, I promised I would give you a chance to talk about speeches you're giving, uh, papers you're releasing. Is there anything else that our listeners should be watching for? Sure. So, uh, right now I'm, I'm working on a, uh, a book, uh, with, uh, Daniel Soloff, uh, that's we're working on on data security, rethinking the law of data security, uh, calling it breached, the failure of data security and how to improve. Uh, I'm working on a few articles with Neil Richards on the, the concept of trust, uh, and we're, tr- we're advancing our thesis of trust. One of the things we're working on is um, the, the role of the European Union in sort of exporting norms and why that um, can be good in some ways, but not necessarily great in others. Uh, and then I'm working on a piece on facial recognition technologies with uh, Evan Selinger, where we're, uh, we're arguing that it's time to take this technology seriously and think about some some real meaningful restraints on it. Um, 
And and yes. in the meantime, you're you're teaching uh, uh, as a, a professor of both law and uh, uh, computer science at Northeastern University, right? Uh, talk, That's about, talk, talk, talk about talk yeah. about uh, taking strange bell- bedfellows and making them lean together, right? Uh, right. <laughs> That's a good point. My job is to make the two the two groups learn to, to talk and love each other. <laughs> well, that's terrific. Uh, uh, thanks to uh, Woody Hartzog. Uh, thanks also to uh, Matt Hyman, Jim Lewis, Megan Reese for joining us uh, in the News Roundup. Uh, and thanks to Brian Egan, who bailed me out by uh, agreeing to host the News Roundup. This has been Episode 226 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Remember to send us uh, suggestions for guest interviewees. Uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if uh, your uh, nominee ends up on the show, uh, uh, we will send you a uh, coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast uh, mug. Uh, somebody suggested uh, Woody Herzog. Uh, uh, is he getting his mug? That was me. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, <laughs> we're, you, you, you just heard from uh, Michael Beaver, our intern. He, uh, uh, he was the one who found uh, uh, Woody's book. Uh, so uh, since he's got a uh, lifetime supply of mugs already, uh, he probably won't get it. But uh, you can get one uh, if you uh, find somebody else uh, as entertaining as Woody has been. Uh, um, we are previewing some of our news stories uh, on my Twitter feed, at Stuart Baker. Also on LinkedIn and Facebook, if you have comments on them, and we've gotten some good comments already um, before the show, we might be able to make reference to your comments or just rip off your insights uh, without uh, giving you credit. Uh, if you want to complain about that uh, or something else uh, uh, using actual voice technology, leave a message at 202-862-5785. I'm not going to repeat this number again because nobody is leaving entertaining or even any uh, voicemail messages, so uh, we may just drop this. Uh, uh, w- what we won't drop is our request that you leave a review on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or uh, a Pocket Cast. Uh, um, that's how people find us. Uh, and uh, uh, again, we read them. Uh, and if we see something entertaining or entertainingly abusive, we'll definitely uh, uh, read it out on the show. Upcoming guest interviews. Uh, we are almost up to our uh, uh, hiatus for August, uh, uh, but we will be hearing uh, from Noah Phillips, uh, uh, brand new FTC commissioner, formerly with Steptoe, because you have to be at Steptoe if you want to uh, uh, have something to say about cybersecurity uh, at some point in your career. Uh, and um, a, he'll be on in our last podcast before we go on hiatus. Uh, uh, credits for the show. Uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are the, our producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. And I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Uh, please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 